Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. For those of you that are new, welcome to the program. And for those many of you that are returning, thanks for being so supportive and coming back. Today's episode is called The Impact of Health Research and Economics on MedTech Market Access and Success. And to help us with that today is April Zambelli Wiener, PhD, and also the CEO of TTI Health Research and Economics. I know that title is a long one, but every word of it is important, so I'm just going to repeat it. The Impact of Health Research and Economics on MedTech Market Access and Success. April says, Evidence is your flywheel. The right evidence powers you through the regulatory process and aligns this process and your claims with your value propositions across stakeholders and then on to your product launch. Another long sentence. But not understanding this is where many med tech leaders fail. This is a fascinating discussion because April reveals the possibility that there are two additional chasms that we must contend with, as if the chasm between early adopters and the early majority isn't enough. If you are a medtech leader or aspire to be a leader, you need to understand what April and I talk about today. April is a great teacher and problem solver. If you don't mind, I'm going to be my own sponsor today. As many of you know, I am also the host of the MedTech Leaders community. Some of you are members of the community. This is where MedTech Leaders mingle to share best practices, problems, ideas, and successes, all with the support of subject matter experts. I have created a new entry-level program called the Get Involved Plan. It is only $14 per year at the moment. There is a two-week free trial. Go to medtechleaders.net to learn more. You won't regret it. Now, let's meet up with April and learn about where evidence powers your flywheel to market access and success. April, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. It's really great to have you here today to talk about this very interesting area that all small and medium med tech uh, companies need to be aware of and need to be including in all of their planning. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks so much, Ted, for having me. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what uh, TTI Health Research and Economics does. Sure. So I'm an epidemiologist and statistician by training, but I'm an entrepreneur and an innovator at heart. And so I'm highly motivated by really two things, helping people and solving really complex problems. And I like to, in fact, tackle the most difficult problems, um, which really started with my PhD. I kind of said, tell me what the most difficult program is. And that's what I want to do. <laughs> and that was that was really at the dawn of uh, the genomics age. I mean, I was in the room while, you know, things were just getting started that are sort of the underpinnings of a lot of our precision medicine technologies today. So that was exciting. 
But uh, during my time at Hopkins and even after, I became really frustrated with the silos and the long translational distance from research to impact. And I really wanted to be a part of shortening that. So, you know, when I see an opportunity to make a difference or do something, I want to do it. And so I left academia, went into private industry where the pace was a little more um, my speed, if you will. But also I just wanted a more applied, diverse experience. I saw so many important problems in healthcare that our toolkit could address. And I wanted the opportunity to do that. Um, so really the foundation of TTI is derives from me, obviously, as the leader and my very diverse background. So when I was at Hopkins, I wanted to do everything soup to nuts. I wanted to understand data creation at every level of the ecosystem. And so I literally was doing in vitro and vivo studies. I was doing molecular genetics. I was in the field doing surveys. I was collecting environmental samples, and I was running a data analysis core and analyzing all that data. And so all of that methodology and all of that experience is sort of what I brought to the company in terms of understanding data creation throughout our ecosystem and how do we turn that into evidence. And that's really the foundation of the company is having a broad toolkit from which to do that. Um, in terms of med tech and how I ended up here, you know, like, like everyone, there's always an element of serendipity to how you end up where you end up. Right. But I will say that the med tech culture is extremely, obviously, entrepreneurial and innovative. And I just feel really aligned to that. Our team feels really aligned to that. It, we, it energizes us. And, you know, we really are passionate about changing the healthcare paradigm from this mass aggregate level approach to a individualized micro segmented approach, um, which means treating subgroups of the population. You know, we've, we've, we've addressed all the big problems we can address. You know, it's time to get down into the groups and there's so many unmet needs. There's so many health disparities. And what I love about med tech is it has the opportunity to bridge and address a lot of that because a lot of these technologies are meant to address those unmet needs in those niche populations. So it's just a very good cultural and mission alignment for us to be focused in med tech. And what we're talking about today, because right now the listeners heard, have heard a lot about data and research and gathering information. And what we're talking about is how this can help small, medium-sized, even large companies succeed if they have this information early on. So let's just talk uh, briefly about what are the different areas that um, uh, TTI helps organizations with, and then we're going to get into a little more detail. Sure. Um, and in a little bit, I'll pull up sort of, um, there's a life cycle graphic that's on our website, and I have, sort of have a slide around that as well. You know, we really support companies across the life cycle because evidence is required across the life cycle and should be generated across the life cycle. And I also have on a slide, you know, one thing people will hear me say a lot is evidence is your flywheel. Evidence is your flywheel. It is what makes the market move faster for you. Um, it has to be the right evidence at the right time in the right population to the right people, but evidence is your flywheel. And so we start very early with companies, ideally, um, putting together a full market access roadmap plan um, and then helping them execute it. So we're both strategic advisory and also execution support, actually developing the models, developing the studies, implementing the studies, overseeing them. Um, 
so everything from R&D and starting that planning to, you know, end stage marketing and sales support, sales training, developing tools and, and so on. But today I know we're going to focus on market access, reimbursement, health economics and value analysis. Right, exactly. But the yeah. important thing about what you're saying is all the stuff that you're talking about is critical for a company to create a value proposition, a value message and the right one. And, and we'll circle back in a little bit more detail on that in a minute. But one of the things we taught as we were leading up and getting ready to click the record button a few minutes ago, we talked about, let's start with uh, the case study. We were going to do it at the end, but let's start with at least talking about the problem a company had. Then we'll go talk about the various market access services and then we'll come back to this company and how we how you applied those um, some of your talents to help get this company back on track. Sure. So let, let's talk about this company. Okay, sounds great. So this is not a um, a unique problem. I'll start by saying that um, it's a. I'll just put a little context to it. Uh, it's it's in the oncology space and it's a uh, prophylactic technology. So it's meant to mitigate expensive and um, costly, expensive, costly, and, you know, harmful adverse events. And so that's, that's sort of the context of it. Um, the problem the company had, and this is a good example of sometimes you can be thinking the right way, but not executing properly. And so what they did was the challenge was they weren't prepared or able to invest in the right studies, the right clinical economic studies. So they cut corners and they built a, a negative track record, three studies that were not very supportive for their technology and their revenue started, you know, the trajectory was, was going down. So they were not hitting milestones. So that's the overall problem um, for, you know, at, at a very high level. Okay. Okay. So three studies got the, um, with not the greatest results, not convincing results. And where they had thought these studies were going to be helpful to them, it, they ended up actually shooting themselves in the feet. Um, and now their, their revenue is right. going down. Okay. All right. right. And I would call it, it was sort of a spaghetti approach, right? I call it that. I call that the spaghetti approach. You know, well, we don't want to spend this. So we're going to cut corners and just do this. Okay. Oops, that didn't work. Now we're going to just try this data set or this population. Oops, that didn't work. Now the next one. And after three, someone higher up said, enough is enough. What are you going to do now? <laughs> right. Right. That could have been a board member. Who knows? Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. So now our focus is on market access. And this is something I actually, I have to, I'm embarrassed to say this as a so-called marketing and sales med tech professional, I'm embarrassed to say this, but the whole concept of using resources like those at TTI, I was unaware of this really until um, last year when you and I first started talking. And then I started researching it more, reading more at your website and started looking and thinking back on situations I'd been in and then also encountering businesses myself. And if you recall, I've, I've referred a couple people to talk to you because I think they might've been on the wrong track or they needed to be at least on the right track to begin with. You're right. <laughs> so the, the whole concept of market access and, um, 
the tradition in the med tech world, especially small, medium sized companies, is to somebody, an engineer or a doctor, they invent something because they see a better clinical outcome, which is great. And they, but they think that that's the only value that the product has and it will survive on that value. That simple one little piece of value that they came up with initially and they start their path toward regulatory approval and a product launch. And then they launch the product and they end up in trouble. What we're talking about is going back before that. So some of this market access work should really start prior to clinicals or prior to any regulatory activity. Mm -hmm. If, and if, by chance, you might not need clinicals because it's a five, five, ten k. Uh, why do you? Why would you explain? Uh, how would you explain why mm-hmm. this is important? Yeah, definitely want to do that. And if you don't mind, I just want to go back and address something you said because I think sure. it's really important. I want to take this opportunity um, to talk about medtech's relationship with outsourcing, right? And how I, I see this changing and hope that the, you know, COVID was a change agent for this. So MedTech has a very different relationship with outsourcing than pharma. And pharma has a long history of outsourcing. Um, and pharma's market access pathway is much more straightforward, which is why there's huge, it's, you can commoditize it, you can scale it so easily, which is why big CROs have popped up around pharma and not so much MedTech. Um, MedTech is so nuanced. It's so incredibly nuanced. Um, almost every company that comes to us has something about their trajectory or pathway that's a little bit different or unique. And so I think that makes it harder to scale and build a company around it. It's challenging. It's absolutely challenging. And we have such a siloed marketplace. You know, MedTech tends to, in my experience, you know, if if you're in cardiology, they expect you to know cardiology or they want to stay in cardiology or diabetes and people tend to stay in their lane, so to speak. And what, what I think our clients have realized, one of the benefits is that we get to work across all of those areas. And so we get to leverage what I call all that high collision expertise and bring it to a particular problem or, or area. Um, you know, you might see one official health technology assessment in your particular domain area in, in a matter of five or 10 years, and maybe we've seen 30 because we're mm-hmm. working across so many areas. So I think there's reasons why, you know, you weren't aware, I, you're not alone of our company and there aren't that many out there. Um, and I think that those are some of the reasons why. But to get back to your question about why it's so important to do this early. And, you know, I, this is one of my drums I love to beat a lot because it's just so important and it's just continues to be an education point with people. You know, you and I both know everyone listening knows that as a med device company, the odds are against you, right? I mean, that's just the reality. 90% of startups fail. I think 98% of digital health startups fail. So, in our experience, which is collectively decades of helping med device, med tech companies, failure to plan for market access early is one of the key causes of company failure or company underperformance. And I know we're going to get into this, mm-hmm. you know, throughout. So, right. um, but, you know, I was thinking about this this morning and did you ever read the book Dare to Prepare by, by uh, Ron Shapiro? No, Dare to book. Prepare. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. So, you know, I had the opportunity to hear Ron speak on the book a while ago. And ironically, this is on one of my kids' summer reading lists. So it brought back his talk. 
Um, and one of his clients was Cal Ripken Jr. And what my son plays baseball and he's about to go play at the Ripken experience in, in Myrtle Beach, we're a big baseball family. So these two things came together and I was like thinking about the book and uh, the talk and what it sort of reminded me of was, you know, I remember him standing up there and saying, he said to Cal Ripken Jr., look, you can't just walk in there and say, I'm Cal Ripken Jr., give me big money. Like, even though Cal Ripken is a star among stars, they went through so much planning and preparation to get, not get the deal, get the level of the deal that they wanted. And I think this really correlates almost to the like, no, what I call the no brainer syndrome. You know, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard uh, a company say it's a no brainer, I could definitely like buy a private island, you know? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, the most significant pervasive mistake that med tech companies make is not investing in the same kind of planning and preparation that really starts with this full market access roadmap that draws together all the necessary expertise and puts it at the table early to make sure there's consensus around the optimal path. And so what is the optimal path? It's not necessarily the path of least resistance, the low hanging fruit. It's the one that accelerates your market trajectory with high ROI activities that maps your business model and your value proposition and your unique position in the marketplace. And so you, you have to do that early if you want all of these activities, investments you're making to align. Um, and it really requires another thing I say a lot is, and it's a challenge for entrepreneurs. I, I see this challenge in myself sometimes. You have to have an ROI mindset, not a cost mindset, an ROI mindset. If you're making big investments, they should be doing double, triple duty for you. And if they're not, you need to rethink them especially evidence in, or investments in studies, models, um, evidence development. And so um, I'll pause after this, but you know, the reason why this can be so, so catastrophic to skip this step is that in those early days, you're making really important decisions that have long-term impact on the company's viability and success. People don't really understand sometimes um, the the ramifications of picking a particular regulatory pathway. They don't understand how that intersects or limits their ability from a reimbursement perspective or how they can market and position their product in the marketplace. And so, you know, we're going to, I know we're going to get into this, but with what's concerning me is that with less money than ever from VCs and, and private equity being invested in lower rounds of funding. So I know data just came out showing like something like less than 25% of all VC funding is going to lower rounds, meaning below C round. Um, you've got to make those dollars count and they've got to take you far because you're not getting those later rounds unless you have demonstrated the value of your tech to the marketplace. And that means real world evidence of some kind. Right. I'll pause. <laughs> okay. So if we go if we go back to you know getting an early start, uh, one of the things that I'm fascinated fascinated with is the whole concept of doing preclinical studies and clinical economic studies even before you finalize the protocol of a clinical study if you need it, whether it's a large clinical study or maybe it's a small one to support a five ten k, but 
you talk about preclinical studies and the clinical economics studies, and I don't know whenever you want to, you talked about having a, a slide or two that you want to show and if this associates with that, but um, t- tell me more about this. So without getting into too much, you know, getting in the weeds too much, I think the point is the marketplace so it depends on who the stakeholders are in the marketplace, but let's just speak generally, wants to see a track record of evidence and they want it to tell a story. And I think that one of the mistakes that um, med tech companies make is they let um, perfect be the enemy of good or good enough. Um, you know, sometimes they don't want to publish on their early versions of their technology, or they just want to have this big definitive splash. And so they hold off on smaller studies or pilot studies. Um, But every opportunity that your product is being tested, you know, early feasibility studies, um, preclinical, clinical studies, any kind of studies. And we have companies right now who we exclusively collect billing data on all of their um, pre-regulatory studies. And so what they're doing is strategically collecting economic data early so that they can start understanding their value prop early and they can start pivoting as needed or, you know, positioning as needed. And so I think that there's what we see is just a lot of really missed opportunities um, to leverage the investments you're already making and get publications out of them, get real world data that can inform your go-to-market strategy, um, that can give you early glimpses into barriers and things that you might need to, to pivot on or address. Um, so just at a high level, I think, I think that's the answer, but you're going to end up spending more. If you don't do that, you're going to end up spending significant more, significantly more to wait and, and do those things later, or you can just go down the wrong path and that can be, um, fatal really can be a fatal flaw. Yeah, I think uh, one of the conversations you and I had last year, we talked about the fact that companies could, let me back up here a second, somebody invents something, develops something, and they have this idea in their head as to how it's going to work and the and the positive clinical outcome. And they're they're interacting with a small circle of other people, believers like themselves. And so they're in this ivory tower. Um, and they're, they really believe in that. And they're getting reinforced by their close circle of advisors or friends. But what they don't realize is that there might be a lot of market data out there already in uh, current clinical studies that go back mm-hmm. over years or whatever that might indicate there is another and better need that be, needs to be fulfilled, right? Absolutely. And, and sometimes it's out there and sometimes it's not. And I uh-huh. think... I think sometimes there's very low cost ways that you can do customer research. Um, And we've had that situation. We've had the situation where companies have come to us and said, we know this is our value prop. Here's, you know, several hundred thousand dollars, do a study, do a model. And we go, wait a minute. How do you know? We, we, We need to know what you know and how you know it. So how do you know this? And once we dig in, it's it's really just a couple, you know, influencers within the organization, and it's very anecdotal. And so we say, no, you need to stop, you need to pause, you need to do some customer research, something smaller, and find out if this really is your value prop. 
because not only does that happen and you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, we all do it right. And it, it, it comes from a good place. Cause we're all so passionate about what we do and we believe in it so much. I mean, we're taking huge risks to do what we do. Um, so it makes sense, but you have to keep that in check. You have to keep that bias in check. You know, we outsource customer research and we can absolutely do it ourselves because our clients pay us to do that. Right. But we know enough to know it needs to be independent. So that said, going back, you know, another thing that I see is the discriminator differentiator issue, right? And so I like to bring that up too. You know, sometimes the clients will will go forward with something that they see as a differentiator, but they haven't checked whether the client actually cares about that outcome, there right? You go. So it, <laughs> and that's what makes something a discriminator, right? A differentiator is you're 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 different than your competition, and the discriminator adds the piece the market actually cares about it, or your client actually cares about it, and and oftentimes we see misalignment there. The client doesn't care about that at all. Um, in fact, this is where the value story lies if they actually make those investments. Right. I, I just think that's so important. And I know many of the companies I worked with and we were working with new concept technologies and we did not do this kind of work. You know, in a couple of cases, we lucked out and in a couple of cases, there were failures. Right. So, um which hurts everybody, it hurts investors, it hurts the employees. And these are mistakes that the best team in the world cannot overcome. And I've been on a couple really good teams that, you know, didn't make it. Absolutely. Be- because Absolutely. of some of these, the, what do you call it? The differentiator and the discriminator, you know, yeah. because these, these particular issues, I, I love that. Um, so, Assuming a technology is on its way through the regulatory process, okay, whether they need clinical trials or not, it is not too late to create the foundation for reimbursement. So I think that's another issue is creating a foundation for reimbursement. And so the question I want to ask is what type of research would support this effort, you know, this reimbursement effort? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this might be a good time to pull up a couple slides. Sure. Go ahead and share your screen. And while you're getting the screen up, I'm going to, I'm also going to uh, point out to the, to the listeners that another reason it's important to do some of this pre-regulatory and pre-clinical research is so that if the value proposition is going to be a little bit different and also how it relates to different stakeholders, we'll talk about that in a minute too is that you can make sure your clinical work and your regulatory work is oriented to support those claims that should be made. Not the claims that you think you right. ought to go for, but what the market really wants to you know, have uh, validated. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Okay, let me pull this up. Let me see if I can... Okay, so this was just... Um, these might be out of order. Um, it's okay. Yeah. So this is an example of the life cycle slide that we have on our website. And just an example of how we work with clients sort of across the product life cycle. And what we like to do is call out this market development piece. So we like to kind of call that out as a separate category. And we put it between clinical and regulatory and market introduction because sometimes that's what happens. And you and I had that conversation about a company who got through regulatory and then they took a year or two to really get their reimbursement lined up. 
and their market access lined up. And that that can happen and can work. But our goal is to push market development as far back as possible into clinical and regulatory till you almost eliminate that middle spot, right? Mm -hmm. That's what's going to really accelerate. And so the whole process is is governed by the market access roadmap um, and evidence development really happens throughout the process. So just kind of a a sample of how we might work with a a company across the life cycle. This was, um, I had this in here and I, I, I loved your episode on the, uh, technology adoption, like, um, you know, life landscape. cycle curve. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The curve. Thank you. Yes. And so, you know, this is a slide that we use and I, I put it in here just because I wanted to remind myself to make the point that it doesn't just apply to providers and health systems, it applies to payers as well. And so when you're developing a reimbursement strategy, it needs to take into consideration knowledge of the different payers. Um, And I think that, um, you know, drawing from another episode that I really liked, which was with Mark Dixon and the Four Forces. Yes. Yes, Um, I thought that was great too. He's terrific. Yes, (laughs) fantastic. He talked about, you know, just being in the information age and how it's changed the provider patient relationship and how now the patient comes in armed with all of this information and it might or might not be correct, but the doctor has to kind of help navigate that. In some way, we're in the same position as the provider, right? Because what we see is companies come to us and they know enough to kind of identify the pieces, but they don't know how to put them together in the right way. Um, and that, so that can be a challenge, you know, where I, I just was reviewing a go-to-market, um, pitch deck for a company and they said, oh, you know, phase one, we're going to get these provide these payers and phase two, we're going to get these payers. And it was all driven by just addressable market percentages, you know, where they could get addressable market percentages. And I said, no, 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 and no, you're not getting into any of those payers anytime soon. Right. Because you have you don't have evidence. It'll be just a flat out no right out of the gate. And so they don't understand the nuance. They don't know where the progressive payers are, where they can go to get coverage for evidence. So this is just a reminder that this applies to payers as well. Interesting. That's great. I wanted to bring this up to just talk about the importance of reimbursement as part of a market access roadmap. So at the top are the components of a full robust market access roadmap. And underneath are the key analyses that really go into that. And ideally, these all work together. So for those who might not be, you know, seeing the slide, at the top, we have components, reimbursement strategy, value story development, evidence development, pricing, sales and contracting, and value communication defense. And then underneath, You've got all kinds of analyses that need to roll up to those recommendations. And so, of course, reimbursement pathway is a very important analysis that will go into defining the optimal path. Um, And these all work together, ideally, um, because that's where you get synergy. That's where you get market momentum and you can really accelerate your trajectory. And I know we're going to talk about that case study um, a little bit more later, and that will illustrate that. This is a great framing slide for understanding the challenge of and tension between regulatory approval and market access. And we all understand the landscape. We understand how complex it is. 
But the bottom line is there's two takeaways from this slide. The, the evidence that goes into getting regulatory approval is almost never the same evidence that's required for market access. And so we really have misalignment in our ecosystem. And what happens is that companies get through regulatory approval and, you know, they want to like celebrate and instead they just come smack into the wall of the U.S. payer system. And it can be catastrophic. Um, there's a general lack of understanding of, of how these two work, how evidence differs and how you need to be positioning early for market access. So what I say is there's almost a first chasm when you talk about crossing the chasm between, you know, uh, early adopters and early majority, there's also this chasm of getting from regulatory to market access. And depending on the type of technology, you know, it can be more or less in terms of the investments that you have to make. And then the other point is really evidence is your flywheel. So you have to understand that evidence is what makes the market move for you and you need to generate the goal with market development is to generate increasing quality and quantity of the right evidence um, for the right people according to your plan. Um, I love that analogy, a chasm <laughs> between the regulatory and the market access. That is so well said. Great. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so this is, <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad because that's, it's such an important message. Um do you want me to just kind of walk through all the slides right now? If you'd like to, sure. So we can close them out and then I don't have yeah. to flip back and forth and you can you can edit it as you want. Um, what I wanted to just introduce with this was the kind of high level decision pathway that we take uh, clients through. Um, and without getting into the weeds, this is more of a reference slide that people can just, you know, go back. For, I'm not going to walk through this in excruciating detail, but Another key sort of misstep or message that I want to convey to people is that there's a lot of devil in the details here, and reimbursement is really composed of three things, coding, coverage, and payment. And people tend to sometimes latch onto one of those as representing reimbursement for them. Right. Um, sometimes it's coding. But a lot of times it's coverage. A lot of times when I see go-to-market plans, it's we want X percent of the addressable market, total addressable market by this date, um, you know, this many covered lives, and we're going to use this code and we're going to set this payment. Like, like it's a simple thing, right? Right. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but you don't understand what, use, what the implications of using that code are to your five-year plan. Um, and a perfect example that's very relevant, um, I'll just use, is, is molecular diagnostics or laboratory diagnostic tests. There's a lot on the market right now coming onto the market. Um, there's a lot of code stacks that you can use for these technologies, but you need to be aware of the pitfalls of using those code stacks. So I always say, beware of the low-hanging fruit, because you can use that code stack and you can get early revenue. But when you come in a year or two later with all your evidence in hand and say, look what I've done and look what our technology can do, they're going to say, what were we paying you for that test? Oh, $125. Great. Here's $125. You've just locked yourself into that 
you know, for your test, like forever, really, you're going to have a very uphill battle versus getting a new code, which might present a challenge at first, but might allow you to charge three times for your technology later. So there's a lot of nuance to this. Um, the top line question is, is there an existing pathway for your product? And it's a little bit of a trick question because it's not, can my product fit into this pathway? It's should my product fit into this pathway according to my business model and my business plan. Um, just because there's a code doesn't mean there's coverage or payment. Um, it doesn't mean it's a payment level that meets your business goals and objectives. So, but if there is, then advance to go, yay for you. You don't need reimbursement. You just need a sales strategy. Um, so that's sort of the left side of the curve. You know, right. if there's not a pathway, the question really is, are the why? Why is there not a viable pathway? And are the reasons addressable, like insufficient evidence or the health economic argument hasn't been established? Or are they non-addressable, like a statutory exclusion? So, you know, coming back to the laboratory diagnostic tests, a lot of these are screening tests. A lot of people don't realize that CMS is statutorily unable to pay for laboratory screening tests unless they're part of a carve-out. So certain carve-outs like colorectal cancer, which is why you have Cologuard, right? But there's if you're not in those carve-outs, you're not getting CMS coverage, period. So that's a, that's a non-starter. You need to rethink your strategy. And so in that middle space, where's where all those questions need to be asked and all those analyses, and, and it's, it's, it gets messy in there. So you need help navigating that and figuring out what the optimal path is. And so for for listeners, this slide is it's like a decision tree almost. It um, is a decision tree, yeah, yes. <laughs> which which starts with the question existing pathway, and then either yes or no, and then if it's yes, does it fit? Which is where April said you could advance to go. If it doesn't fit, then you have things to do. Or on the other side, if you don't have an existing pathway. Um, you know, is it addressable? You know, can you address this problem and come up with, you know, coverage and reimbursement and so on? Um, yeah, this is very interesting. So it's just, it's kind of a high level guide to, to frame some thinking about the, the decisions that go into the optimal reimbursement pathway. Sure. Excellent. Okay. Um, maybe we can stop here for a minute. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you. Those were those are really good, and I love I love our new chasm. <laughs> Excellent. So we were I think we were talking about regulatory. Do you want to go back to that? Well, we we had talked a little bit about regulatory. Then, um, yeah, because what I was well, I was using where we are on the regulatory pathway relative to reimbursement. So we were just talking about that a little bit, but what kind of studies could be done in advance of the regulatory process to help support the reimbursement strategy? Right. And I noticed that in like a couple examples in your array of services would be, for example, a burden of illness study, Yes. you know, um, or a reimbursement landscape assessment. Yes. So the landscape assessment is the number one most important thing. Um, okay. And I think uh, the reason I really want to emphasize that is, is because it, it's so nuanced how reimbursement and regulatory need to work together. Sometimes um, you really just need to like see that 
the options and see the whole picture come together. And regulatory strategy is really similar to market access strategy in that it's about evaluating all the potential options available and then selecting the one that gives your product the best chance to succeed with that unique position in the marketplace that's going to resonate with your customers. Um, And so, you know, different regulatory pathways give you more or less freedom with how you position your product with what evidence is required and competitive advantages. And so what we see a lot is, you know, the 510 510K pathway is obviously a faster, less expensive pathway, but by definition, you are grouping your product with other products. That's Mm -hmm. the entire basis of it. Um, So you're showing that your product is the same as, as other products. So that can definitely be a limitation and certainly a challenge. Um, whereas the de novo pathway, you don't have to so- show substantial equivalence. I mean, that's really where you have the ability to create your labeling with anything you can prove. So how do you know what you need to prove if you haven't gone through all of those in- analyses and that reimbursement landscape and that market access, you know, activity? Um and, and, you know, do the studies, as you said, and have those market access endpoints in the studies, um, because all of these pathways have downstream impact on market access and interact with market access. Um, and what we end up seeing is when they don't interact together is huge investments in repeating studies, um, right? So you have the right, I'm, I have a client right now, and it's so frustrating. I have to, like, this is where my passion comes out because, um, you know, I'm without getting into my personal life a lot. Like I'm the mother of um, my children. Numerous of my children have birth defects and different challenges. And, you know, we sort of live with um, being the 1% that things happen to every day of our (laughs) lives. And, and truly um, I understand um, the plight of, of these, some of these subgroups and that can be, you know, benefit from these technologies. And so I'm really passionate about, I want these technologies to get to the patients who can benefit from them. Um, my son's life would be infinitely less quality, less full without the custom prosthetic that, that he has made for him every two years. I can't even imagine what his life would be like without that. So, you know, I'm, I, I hate seeing money wasted that compromises the viability of these, of these companies and, and, you know, puts a barrier. It may never see the light of day and get to those patients who need it. So, you know, we have a company right now who, you know, it has invested in two really costly regulatory studies and they're not even on the right, they don't even have the right comparator. You know, there's a total disconnect between their regulatory thinking and what's going to happen in their reimbursement and their market access pathway, because it's one of these screening technologies. And it's like, you can't be positioning this as a screening technology because no one's going to pay for it. So you just did a study that positions it as a screening technology. Right. There you go. Now they're going to have to, they have to pivot. They have to make major pivots. Right. Major pivots. Wow. Yeah. So throughout everything that we've talked about so far, you know, if somebody is doing, taking these steps correctly, doing the, early work on market access, even before they start a clinical or start the regulatory process, they're doing this early work, they're gathering data and so on and so forth. You know, a value proposition. Now they had one, that's why they started their company, 
but the value proposition either has been greatly supported or it has been tweaked or changed, altered some way, but it's emerging. You know, why is this value message? How could it be different with your work and your help in advance? How would this value message possibly be different than the traditional clinical outcome only value uh, proposition we typically see? Right. Right. So that kind of gets back to that landscape slide where we have the two flywheels. Right. Typically for regulatory, you're just establishing clinical validity, right? Does the product do what you say it can do? Um, Is it safe? Is it effective at a very basic level? Clinical validity is just table stakes for market access. It doesn't give anyone a single reason to buy your technology It's not what the market cares about. So once you get past that point, you need to understand what the market cares about. And what's really frustrating is they care about a lot of different things. And there's a lot of disparate definitions of value in the marketplace. Very different. You You can have extremely rigid payers who only care about what I call marquee health outcomes, long-term big outcomes that touch on morbidity and mortality, and they're absolutely rigid on it or net health outcome. And then you have others that are more progressive or they take a more broad societal view of value. And you have to know where you're going to go. You have to map your evidence. You know, what's your value prop? What can you actually hold up? And where is that going to be well-received? You have to map that all up together. Um, So basically, in a nutshell, you're dealing with a much broader definition of value in market access. Payers, providers, health systems, IDNs, value analysis committees, they want to know, can the product change the management of the patient, the management of the disease? Do we see changes in physician behavior, changes in medical resource utilization, and of course, outcomes, and it can be different types of outcomes. You know, it's not just clinical outcomes, patient reported outcomes, there can be productivity outcomes, we're seeing more of an emphasis on the provider experience and productivity issues with the workforce shortages we're seeing, and the burnout we're seeing. And so you really have to know your customer. You have to know where you're going and how you develop evidence in an iterative way that builds and allows you to open more and more doors. And that customer could be made up of several different stakeholders that require a bit of a different value proposition each because they have different concerns. Exactly. So you really need to know that. Um, You need to know that and understand that. And I think... um, at a very high level, just to throw in a, a couple, maybe a couple of examples to try to bring it home, um, there's there's just this lack of understanding, and, and, and it's not a blaming or accusatory thing because it's so complicated about evidence requirements and how evidence gets weighed and synthesized to make decisions in our ecosystem And I think it sort of highlights in some companies, depending on the size of the company, sometimes the chasm between clinical and commercial or market access as well, because what I see a lot is commercial teams coming and they don't understand why they're getting negative coverage decisions, right? So they might come to us and say, you know what, we want to do this study, or we want to do, we've been authorized to do this evidence synthesis. We want to do a meta-analysis because, you know, that's at the top of of the evidence pyramid. And we think that this will get us what we need. And it's like, okay, but do you understand why you have negative coverage decisions? 
and and they don't they often don't because it's often very nuanced um in there and i'll use an example we we had a technology that was very similar it was in um the asthma space and it was a very similar scenario to the case study we started out with where they opened doors before they were ready to walk through them and built some pretty negative track record that they had to dig out of spend years digging out of so finally we we helped them do that and we had about 5 to 10% of payers that were holding out and so their commercial team was charged with we got to get these holdouts and we got to get these holdouts. That was the whole mission. So they came and said, you know, we want to do this meta-analysis. We want to do this study. And I said, you know, have you pulled up the negative coverage decisions? Do you understand? And, um, and, and they didn't, they, they were kind of shocked when I told them, this is not going to get you where you want to go. Do you know, the reason you're getting negative, negative coverage decisions is because the pivotal studies that were done, the comparator group was not a group that was treated according to the standard of care. The majority of them were treated off standard of care. They want to see a study where the comparator group is the standard of care. So you got to do a study, got to do another study, right? Um, And they were just, you know, deer in the headlights and, and they're a commercial team. Their expertise isn't in data science and evidence synthesis. That's not necessarily their wheelhouse to understand that, but they were tasked with coming up with a solution that really required that kind of expertise. Sure. Sure. And then even in cases where you do have some type of reimbursement or coverage, or it's a a technology that is a common expense in the um, healthcare ecosystem, you know, in a hospital, I forget how Mark Dixon put it, but you know, he said, you've got the, uh, uh, the user, the tech, the, technologist and then the uh, payer Mm -hmm. as three distinct groups in the ecosystem. So that have their own concerns about bringing a technology. And of course you, you address that via the value analysis committee supposedly, but I just remember an ophthalmology, which is fairly simple, but a typical ophthalmologist in a solo practice, he may have um, five technicians, three to five technicians supporting him helping to manage the patients because there's so much technology in an ophthalmic practice. And I remember one day, uh, one of my sales reps was installing an instrument uh, for a demonstration and a, and a tech walked by the, the door to the room, looked in, asked him what it was. He told her and she said, nope. And she just kept <laughs> walking. Well, we didn't have a value proposition for technicians. You know, we had not studied that. We had not thought about that. We, typical of most technology companies, we were just thinking about addressing the 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 primary user, which in in our case was a physician, an ophthalmologist, or an optometrist. But so often we ignore these other stakeholders. Completely, yes. And and to kind of build on your your ophthalmology vision example, and going back to that situation where the company wanted to hand us. $300,000 to prove the value proposition. It was an exact example of what you just said, right? It's like in the literature, there's published issues around compliance, patient compliance with post-surgical prescription regimens. And so here's an unmet clinical need, you know, obviously people are talking about patient compliance, they must care about it. And so we want to do a study to show that, you know, our technology will improve patient compliance with, with post-surgical, you know, prescription regimen. 
and that's where we said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, let's just take a step back and let's do a market study. Let's. And so what we did was we took a nationally representative sort of sample. It wasn't huge and it wasn't expensive, but we got different, you know, size practices, academic, private, rural, you know, urban. And, and we did, uh, you know, key informant interviews. And then we did a small pilot study at a site. And what we found was, I don't want to say no one cares about patient compliance because they did, but they didn't see that as something they could control or that was hitting their bottom line in a, in a way that they could control. Um, it wasn't the issue. It was an issue, but it wasn't their concern at all. In fact, what they saw was a productivity opportunity where they could eliminate huge amounts of staff time dealt with dealing with prescriptions and getting approvals and getting the right prescription and getting free samples to patients and all of this. So it was a completely different angle. And that really emerged from the, the pilot study, you know, with the, with the site was how much time could be saved by not having to deal with the whole prescription angle on the back end. Um, yeah. So it was a very different value prop in the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I should have added to my ophthalmology example is that technicians can kill a product in a doctor's office and ophthalmology. The doctor may love it, may really agree, may think it has value, but he, he, he or she will turn around and tell you, well, my people don't want to work with it. They think it's too time consuming, too troublesome. Um, so I'm going to pass on it for right now. Right. Um, anyway, these are, these are great examples. Now, We've sort of addressed this throughout this conversation, but like if if you're a small or medium-sized med tech business, you're hearing us talk and you might be hearing the <laughs> cash register ringing, you know, right. <laughs> to, to do this kind of work. Now, when you refer to a testing company and the data that they need, yeah, that's a lot of work, but they're looking at a huge market. But if we're talking right. about a small to medium-sized med tech company, that might be addressing a market, uh, for example, um, uh, in spine surgery, you've got in the United States about, I think, 4,000 mm -hmm. uh, spine surgeons. Sure. You know, so you're addressing smaller markets. You know, what do you tell, what would you say to them about, you know, making these investments and how they can do it in a, in a, um, in a responsible way with help sure. like yours? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this this touches on a lot of things we've already talked about. It it definitely touches on sort of why there's not a lot of companies like ours because yeah. we're we're um be be wary of of any partner, vendor, consultant um where, you know, all they have is a hammer in their toolkit. So everything looks like a nail because, you know, they're out there and and it's a product of our siloed marketplace that people kind of get in their lane and stay there. It's harder to do what we do because I don't have teams of people sitting around who only do clinical trials, right? We run a matrix model. You know, I hire really talented methodologists who can matrix across a lot of different types of activities. Definitely have the depth, the statisticians, the health economists, the measurement experts, but they have broad experience. And so we don't need to push any particular thing. So what I would say is, you know, it's about finding the right sized creative solution that's going to address the need in front of you. And companies can do a lot for under $50,000. I mean, there are so many things they can do for under $50,000 that will dramatically improve their probability of success in the market. 
you know, maybe not 10 or 15, you know, like you might be more limited with what, what you're going to do, you know, for that, but still valuable. I mean, you can still do some interviews and some panels and some things in, in that range. So I think there's just always this hesitation to investing in the planning, but it can pay huge, 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 huge returns. You know, what would you be willing, you know, would you be willing to spend 30,000 to, to increase your valuation by 30 million or 300 million? Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Because yeah, you, that's when we talk about the, the case study, that's what we're talking about. Right. And for listeners on the um, TTI um, health research and economics website, they're under resources. There is a market assessment, I guess, survey. Is that what you call it? Yep. It's like a questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Questionnaire, right. So it's that a, you can take and and see how you come up. <laughs> you see what the yeah. results are. <laughs> it'll um, give you more and it'll give you some suggestions. Right, right. So uh, let's go, let's circle back to that case study. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we had we have this company, it's it's um it was in can, uh, cancer treatment, right? Or yeah, it's in the oncology therapeutic right. area. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I'll, I'll give a little more detail um, now on sort of, they came to us initially and, you know, this is one of those testimonials and case studies that you love, but you hate, right? Okay. It's like, you love to have it, but you really wish it hadn't happened for the company, but, um, but it's, it has a happy ending. So they came to us about maybe six months before their regulatory approval and they did have a de novo pathway. So it was a little bit longer of a a pathway, but still, you know, good. You're coming to us before approval. And as I said, they didn't want to make the investment in the definitive um, cost effectiveness model with real world data inputs. And so they decided to go, you know, cut some corners. Um, And they did a series of three clinical economic studies that none of them were very favorable for their technology they got a little bit of revenue and they got a little bit more revenue and you can kind of see the revenue flattening as each of the studies comes out and it's, it's the, the trajectory is flattening, flattening. And there's reasons, you know, the devil is in the details with these things. And I absolutely can't emphasize this enough. You absolutely need to have experts in health economics, in in data science, and in these multifactorial teams building these studies for you because the devil is in the details. If you think you're going to do a study that just relies on high-level coding, you could be really, really heading down, you know, the wrong path. And what we do is, you know, we look for the right data sources to build the study. It might be administrative claims. It might be EMR. It might be a hospital um, database or so on. But um, I see so many companies writing their own protocols. Don't do it. (laughs) Please at least get outside input. Don't do it. (laughs) And so they came back to us. So they came back to us with their tail between their legs and they said, how do we fix this? You know, how do we fix this? Why have these other three studies not been successful? And we very clearly said to them very, very succinctly, look, the market wants to see these three things. You have not brought these three things together in the same study. Your value prop is literally a three-legged stool in terms of, again, not just what you think it is, but what the market requires. And you haven't put those together in the same study. As soon as you do that, 
you will show cost effectiveness of your technology. And in fact, so we did and they did. And um, the revenue absolutely skyrocketed. It went from around 8 million to 30 million the next year. Wow. Yes. Talk about a return on investment. (laughs) Absolutely. And so, you know, had they continued and so, and the company was acquired for 500 million at that point. Wow. And so had the company continued on their original trajectory with the bad, bad, you know, bad studies, um, at the same point, it would have been probably, you know, 300 million less um, in terms of the valuation of the company. We also did the analysis, what would have happened had they done the study, you know, the right way from the beginning, and they could have exited two years earlier. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. It's significant. I mean, the impact of the evidence, the studies, what you do, how you do, how you put it together is absolutely pivotal to your market success. Um, I just can't emphasize it enough. Um, And, you know, anyway, that's what we're really passionate about is helping companies do that. You know, when your board comes to you and says, you have to do a $10 million study, don't believe them. Don't believe them. You might have to, but you also might not have to. Um, And we, you know, we just had that situation where we did three clinical economic studies for a client in a year in one year, we did three studies in, in the right populations with the right out, outcomes. And, you know, they added 50 million lives of coverage during COVID. During COVID. Wow. And they were told they had to do the clinical trial on the, on the primary endpoint that they were absolutely never going to be superior on. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> well, it's got to make you feel pretty good. Yes. And, and your yes. clients. I love those success stories. But yeah. I'd rather they do it right the first time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we're, I, I don't know how much, how good you are for time, but um, a smaller company, like I said earlier, that was addressing a smaller market and might be, you know, maybe it's a market that they're trying just to get to uh, 10 or 20 million for mm-hmm. a particular product would be a success over a several year period of time. Um they can still find value in getting assistance on some of these, some of these, this early market access type of work, correct? Absolutely. I mean, okay. everyone needs to develop their, their health economic um, argument, especially in this marketplace. It has never been more important. Um, and no offense to the CFOs out there, but something other than what your CFO put together, right? right. I mean, there, there needs to be, there's a lot to be said for independent, evaluation of the economic impact of your technology by people who have expertise, you know, in that area. And so again, you know, we have, we, we do lots of health economic models um, for early stage companies that are even pre-launch where they're just getting their ducks in a row. And, you know, they can be very simple calculators or basic decision trees. You know, sometimes they have tools attached that they can use with, with sales, but it at least gives them, a tangible and and robust foundation to build on. And then you can expand those models and complete them with more robust data as time goes by or as you need to, um, or not as you you don't need to. Thinking that you're going to just walk in there with your own calculations and and the comment that it's a no-brainer, it isn't going to (laughs) work. And it's especially not going to work in this 
market. There's very little patience for premium products right now, for cost additive products. You better have a compelling value prop that has a strong you know, economic component to it. Excellent. Well yeah. said. And um, any books, newsletters, websites you recommend that people follow that I can put in the show notes? Yeah. Um, you know, I thought about that and it's tough because like we were saying, like it's such a siloed marketplace. So, you know, if you want to go here for, you know, regulatory or here for reimbursement, um, you know, I subscribe to a lot of different ones for, for different things. I think definitely podcasts like yours and others are really good because you can like scan for the things you're interested in and like hone in on them and get real world um, experience. You know, of course, I'm glad you mentioned the market readiness tool because I'm proud of that. And I think that will be helpful to companies. And and people uh, can sign up for your newsletter. Yeah. I get it, right? Yes, they can sign up for our newsletter. And we try to really provide actionable information. You know, our goal is to help de-risk decision-making and help companies move in like incremental ways that build certainty, building certainty with each step. Um, no, uh, you know, otherwise I'll just throw out, you know, I threw out the um, Dare to Prepare, which is sort of a blast from the past for me in terms of a book. But right. I've also been reading um, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. I don't know if you... Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. So, of course, you know, I love... I'm just a geek. I mean, I'm a data geek. I'm like a research geek. I just love learning new things. But the whole, you know, Dan Kahneman, um, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economist... Um, the underpinning of Moneyball, which of course is, you know, baseball, baseball love. But right. I, it was there were some really interesting things in the book that really do apply to our market. Um, and one of them we kind of talked on, which is thinking about how we compare things, you know, and how people compare things that people have their own internal models from which they evaluate things. Um, and so, you know, I won't get into all the details, but you, it just reinforces needing to know your customer is so, so important. Um, and then what you're comparing yourself to depends on how will really influence how you're evaluated. And I think they use like a simple example, like, um, you know, do you prefer, you know, apples as a snack? Like if I ask you, do you like apples as a snack? You might say, yeah, I like apples. You know, would you prefer apples over a cucumber or apple or a cucumber? Well, it kind of depends on which way you go. Do you like, <laughs> do you like sweet or do you like, you know, cucumbers? And then if I say, well, do you like apples or orange? You might have, you might no longer prefer apple, right? Because it just really depends what that comparator is. And right. I think that there's a lot of points in the in the development life cycle where you need to think about that. Like we talked about the 510K pathway. What's the implication of putting yourself in a bucket with other products? And by the way, what is the reimbursement landscape for those products? What does that look like? And so you, what are you getting into by comparing yourself to that group of, of products? Exactly. Um, and then the other one that I think is interesting, just real fast, is is I always I don't like this reminder because I tend to be like a glass half full person. I, I really like am like put a 10 on everyone's head and I, I like to think positively. And so um, but the the losses loom larger than gains is another thing to think about. Um, and including when you're building your economic models and stories. So like losing a hundred dollars hurts more than you know, is more. Um, impactful than gaining a hundred dollars. Um, and they talk a lot about all the, the psychology studies where they did all those evaluations. So um, humans prefer to avoid losses over equivalent gains. 
which was interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You'll turn me into a geek. Although I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, analytical myself. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of people are in, in the, in this business, in this, in in healthcare. Um, Sure. Yeah. Well, this has been great. You You know, I'm, I'm, uh, and the listeners can hear this, but um, I, I go back and I, I listen to this whole thing. I take notes while I edit and I ended up with three or four pages of notes and it helps me, you know, do the show notes and stuff like that. But I'm really looking forward to going back because a number of things really popped out that I think are valuable and helpful and interesting. So I'm looking forward to it. And thanks again so much for being on with me today. Thanks so much, Ted. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Take care. So do you feel like you've just been hit with a fire hose deluge of information? When I edited this podcast, I took four pages of notes. If you are involved in planning a launch in six months to a year, you may want to take a hard look at the evidence that has been gathered to support your regulatory process and think about whether it is what you need to support market access and your launch. If your company is struggling with a launch, does the evidence you've gathered support the value proposition across all stakeholders? Is something missing, like evidence to support value analysis in the hospital ecosystem or payers? Or if you haven't started the process of gathering evidence because you're preclinical, you have a prototype, you have a product, you have some initial input on its value, then you have the opportunity to consider what we talked about today and track towards success instead of failure. If you like this podcast, please recommend it to a friend, rate it, and or subscribe. And don't forget to check the show notes for important links to interesting things that April and I talked about. Now go win your week. (laughs) 